Welcome to the Vet Podcast by the Vet Gurus, Brendan and Mark. Get ready for the latest veterinary news, information and entertainment. Don't forget to visit us at the Vet Gurus website, vetgurus.com. Now, sit back, relax, it's over to the Vet Gurus, Brendan and Mark. Welcome, Brendan here with Mark, vetgurus.com, vetgurus at gmail.com to send us an email and say hello. It is episode 171, Friday 8th of January 2021. Well, already into our second episode for 2021, Mark, and I forgot, well, I did sort of briefly mention it to you, Mark, but I forgot to tell you the story about the Christmas Day malfunction. Do you want to hear that? The fiasco. (laughs) Well, I suppose it was a fiasco. (laughs) So Christmas morning, and we were getting ready to go to Annie's parents for the big lunch that I briefly spoke about last week. And <laughs> and he decided to pull out the Remington – well, I, I decided, I must admit, um, to pull out the Remington Rapid Cut Turbo, Mark, that um, I reviewed on a previous podcast. As, as you know, I purchased the Remington hair clippers during the lockdown period, and that's what I've been using, or Annie or one of the girls have been using to cut my limited amount of hair I have left um, because I end up – with what they call the koala look, especially on the sides there, Mark. Um, So I was due for a bit of a trim, so I pulled out the Remington Rapid Cut Turbo and (laughs) the attachments, and they got lots of different attachments, you know, um, um, what level of of cut you want, you know. Um, And I think it's universal, isn't it? You say you want a number one or you want a number two or a number three or whatever. I typically go for the 1.5, being a bit contrary. I I find the one that's a 1.5 equivalent cut, which is about, I don't know, three or four millimetres or so. So I sat down in the bathroom there and Annie got the the shaver out um, and and did one big sweep on the left side of my head and and she (laughs) typically then shows me the the hair and she says, look, look how thick it was, you know, um, with all the hair that collected in the the shaver there. Then she did another sweep and then then she thought, oh, it's a bit short. (laughs) (laughs) And I must admit it was my fault. Um, I forgot to put the attachment on it, so she was just using the rabbit rabbit, rabbit cut with – Zero, um, as as the rapid, so basically the the army cut, yeah, yes, um, the chrome dome. Um, so there I was with two two swipes of one side of my head, um, at at level zero haircut, about to head off to see the see the um, through the um, father in law and the mother in law and the and, and his side of the family. So it was, um, so there was a few tears, and not just by me. Um, and and Jane sort of came to the semi rescue there, and she um, she, um, she she blended it. She, she, she blended it. No, she blended. She blended it um, on the other side and and the and the left side, and um, it yeah, still pretty short, but. Um, I, I I came to terms with it after half an hour, Mark, and you know the old story: the difference between a good haircut and a bad haircut is two weeks. So um, I think I'm at two weeks now. So so um, yes, so it was um, a bit of stress there, uh, if you can call a, 
a, a bad haircut, a bit of stress um, for our Christmas day. But it didn't, it didn't dampen the enthusiasm of of me. Um, Brendan, you weren't tempted. You Christmas weren't day. you weren't tempted to go the full like razor chrome dome effort. No, um, although I think Annie was trying to be nice. She's saying, well, the good thing is you've got a good head. Um, you haven't got an ugly head, um, you know, and when you, your hair's shaved really short, some people, um, yeah, the head looks terrible, but you, your head is a good shape. So I think she was just trying to be nice and stop my tears flowing, Mark. Um, so, so, yes, that was the, the Christmas Day malfunction um, um, did, that did I forgot you- to mention. Did you get any hats for Christmas Day? Well, funnily enough, you know, we, we, we do the silly um, bonbons, you know, the we, um, the, the, cr- the crackers or whatever, um, and the silly, you know, the silly dad jokes that are inside, and they usually have that, that El Cheapo little hat that you put on yep. um, as part of the, you know, they give you the hat, they give you the the silly joke, and they give you some stupid little toy, don't they? Um, inside it, and um, yeah, funnily enough, I, I wore that little hat most of the day because <laughs> it, it covered the spot actually, it was a bit, bit uh, perfectly the spot that was um, completely bald. Yeah, so there you go. That was um, the the rest of my Christmas Day story, Mark. Um, so any any news from you? Anything um, you wanted to um, update our listeners? About. Well, I don't think there's anything after that, Brendan. I think you should go straight into the review. Yes, I do have a review, and that's um, a review of one of the classic sort of books, the pink book. I think everybody talks about it or calls it, and that's the the, the new edition, the fourth edition. And um, have you got this, Mark? The fourth edition of the ferrets, rabbits, and rodents, the clinical medicine. And we haven't surgery. got it yet. We haven't got it yet. We do have to get it because it, it is – we we have a previous edition and they're immensely useful texts. Yes, yes, and it's a it's the beauty of this particular book always has been that it's a, a good easy easy ready reference um to pick up and it's very clinical orientated for for clinicians so um it's it's on the recommended reading for all our exotic vets out there and even the vets who don't deal with exotics that often mark it's a, it's a great book isn't it and my previous third edition which has now been relegated to the to the um back shelf um is well thumbed and yeah, it is. It is. I mean, there's a couple of things about it. Um, the new edition, it's obviously expanded. Like most of them, they're always getting bigger and bigger, so it is a bigger and thicker book. The good news is it's still pink, Mark. It's still the pink book. They have added a couple of new species in there, um, not that they're seen very often here, Mark. Prairie dogs. There's a chapter on prairie dogs, and there's also a chapter on um, – well, depending on how, who, how funny you want to be with the pronunciation, it's the um, degus or the degus, um, and sugar gliders has been greatly expanded too. I think they did have a chapter on sugar gliders previously, if I remember, in the third edition there as well. So, um, yeah, and, and also some expanded sections of, of virtually all the other um, chapters that were there previously, including more details on things like um, uterine cancers in, in rabbits, for instance, is a much more detailed discussion of that. Um, a lot of the original um, diagrams and pictures are still there. There are additions of some others um, in there. So overall, it's pretty good. It also has an e-book 
edition as well. So when you purchase uh, the physical book, you have a little scratchy at the front where it gives you a code to log in online and you can download it. And um, interestingly enough, there's a little app where you can view it on your iPhone or your um, Android phone as well, Mark, um, and download it there and it's all part free as well so you could have it on the go. So How, that's you, good. What do you reckon about, like, I've got a few veterinary textbooks that have the electronic version come with them. I find it, because I'm old maybe, because I'm not used to it, I bloody just don't take Rarely use it. Yeah, ditto with me, Mark, yeah. Um, Ones that I found useful as far as the electronic variations and supplements are when they are an actual supplement and some of them have had things like care notes and and client handouts and they've been certainly very useful to to, to provide to clients. But, yeah, I must admit I'm the same as you in that um, even though it's basically the same edition in an electronic version and it's potentially, in theory, a lot easier to search um, for particular topics and that. I must admit I don't I don't have it up there on a tab on my computer at work and I, I reach for the actual physical book, but perhaps that's just you and I <laughs> not being youngsters and not being of, um, of the millennial age, Mark. Um, I don't know. Um, there was one thing that I really disliked about the, the new edition of the Pink Book and it oh actually really, really... I was going to say the P word. Um, it peeved me off, Mark. Um, it did not make me happy at all. And that's the reference values for the species, Mark. Um, a lot of the ref, and I haven't obviously looked through them all, but flicking through a fair number of the reference values for the various species in the book, they don't have SI units oh, in Oh, what is going it's on? ridiculous. I was just, I'm very unhappy with it. And um, the... I was just about to around the face. It's just about yes. to buy the fourth edition, and I've declined to do so if they don't include the the I um, thought that was crazy that the uh, most of the world uses. Yes, um, because and the blurb on the back of the book um, sort of proudly proudly mentioned that um, they've increased their um, the geographical nature of their of their contributors, so it's not just North American um, vets. Um, who have written the chapters um, and, and proudly stating that you know we have we have authors from uh, other places around the world, and yet <laughs> they just have you know um, original um, non-SI units um, for, for for some of the reference values for some of the species, which I thought was crazy. They could at the bare minimum have at least had both. You know, you have the SI and then the non-SI units next to it. Um, it's I just think it's a major, major oversight, and it must be fixed for the f- fifth edition. <laughs> have, they, so, have, they, have they invited you to write a chapter yet? No, why would they invite me after my blast of them now? Um, I don't think I'd ever have a chance of um, <laughs> writing a chapter or any such thing in this book. But, yeah, so that lowered my lowered my, um, lowered my my score, Mark, unfortunately, um, and I thought that was a glaring... Uh, really, I don't know. It just really grates on me when we see something like that. There, it's just crazy. Um, having said that, I think I still, you know, it is it is a book that everybody, including myself, will reach very frequently. And because of that, it has to get an eight point six mark. I'm sorry, it would have been a nine or a nine point five if um, if it, they had not made that glaring mistake. 
So that's my review, the pink book, fourth edition of ferrets, rabbits and rodents, clinical medicine and surgery, and I will post a link to that textbook on our website, vetgurus.com. Brendan, do you, where, where do you, just as a quick sideline to that review, where do you um, generally some from? <laughs> exactly, because you go online and El Xavier um, is obviously the primary vendor, but the, the book is available from a number of bookstores. So yeah, do you have it, a- It depends. I, I do, I, I just look over three or four sites. I look at the original publisher, um, like you mentioned, El, El Sevier or whatever. Um, I think I ended up purchasing that one, purchasing that one from Amazon. Australia, um, because the price was about forty dollars cheaper than if I bought it direct from the publisher, <laughs> even though even though they had at the time just before Christmas or just after Christmas um, a supposed twenty five percent discount for the for the season. Um, so it was just weird. So I just do a bit of price shopping. Basically, I just look at. I even sometimes search for. It's amazing. Sometimes even textbooks like this you can find on places like eBay um, yeah. for some reason, and 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 sometimes it's the official um, publishers, etc., or distributors that have an eBay store. Um, but yeah, I, I look on Amazon. I look on eBay. I, I just do a general Google search, and um, I just end up picking the cheapest one. And um, you know, I've got an Amazon Prime membership, so I get free expedited delivery as well um, here in Australia. Um, yeah, so, but it was actually, it was fairly significant. It literally was 30 or $40 Australian cheaper um, um, just by a few, doing a simple search, search and a couple of clicks. Excellent, excellent yeah. tip. I always, I always enjoy, I know how thrifty you are, my friend, how, <laughs> how you keep an eye on the, the uh, dollars that you spend. It's how you've gotten to be so wealthy. And, um, and I think um, this is a good example of, I just love picking up your little tips. Well, pick up the pink book now, Mark, um, <laughs> fourth edition. You need to order it. Pronto. So I think with that, um, not that we will have this species or group of animals in the pink book because that is only about small mammals. Our main topic this oh, week. Have you, gonna, have you got news? Oh, oh yeah, we do. We have news. Yes, I'm going to jump into <laughs> one quick news story, and then you can. Yes, um, it's a pretty quick one. Mine. It's about migratory fish in the Murray Darling Basin here in Australia, uh, which. The reason why I picked this article up, Mark, and you'll see in a sec why, um, because of, it's got a bit of physics in there and it, and it go, harks back to an old, one of the very few um, equations that I remember from physics. I struggled a bit with physics at university, but um, it talks about the Bernoulli equation, Mark, ah, um, the, the Bernoulli old, equation. So it's basically the articles about um, fish that um, have been struggling to um, – well, do what fish do. Um, I'm a swimming um, uphill and upriver um, because of all the man-made obstructions, and they've they've estimated there's more than ten thousand of these obstructions, which are everything from um, dams to to weirs and all variations thereof, where people are using those rivers for for sucking the water out for agriculture, etc. Um, so the basin's fish stocks have, have reckoned to be just about ten percent mark of what their pre-European settlement levels were. So some very smart scientists, Mark, including um, Professor Harris 
from the University of New South Wales and a team of ecologists and engineers have developed what they call a fish way. It's basically a tube, Mark, where they suck the fish up. That's what it is. They suck the flesh up. It's a siphon. That's all it is. It's a siphon that pumps the fish from a lower level to a higher level without harming them um, because the previous previous little um, methods that they used were very expensive to build all these sort of um, um, fish ladders, Mark, and I know you've seen sort of variations on some of these sort of fish ladders to help fish do what fish want to do. Um, so they've developed these little series of pipes, basically, um, where the fish are protected by a cushion of air where the pressure come in from the difference between the upper water body and the lower one, um, which was developed as far back as the 18th century by the Swiss mathematician Daniel Bernoulli-Mark. There we go, but the Bernoulli equation. And they too, they've Developed only prototypes at the moment, but including one that works for eight metres, Mark. Um, and the beauty of it is that it, it's very cheap, this system of sucking the fish up the pipes, Mark, and spitting them out the other end. So it's a good news story, Mark. It is a good news story. So I've seen some um, online uh, images of this, and crikey's... Um, of the prototypes, and they they do talk about maybe the you know the eight meter prototype they have at the moment might well their their mathematics suggests it might work for a hundred meter rides. Yes. Um, but um, but geez, it, I, I don't. The, I was looking at the faces of the fish being swept along <laughs> in the pipes, and they didn't look happy, Brendan. Those fish did not look. I know this is a good news story. I know it's going to have positive outcomes, but I can't tell you that the fish in the pipes, and maybe they won't be clear pipes in the final functional version, but, um, but yeah, I, I'm, I'm happy to announce my interpretation of the facial expressions of the fish speeding along in a cushion <laughs> of air were not yes. pleasant. Well, it was it was interesting that they developed a, a um, special intake funnels um, that, in their words, create a subtle flow of water that attract the fish without bait or laws. In other words, they suck the fish in, Mark. They suck the fish in. And another quote from the article is, once they're in the tube, they can't escape, and they pop them out the top. They shoot them up the top. And I think, what did it, they mention that only takes like, Five seconds or ten <laughs> seconds or something. So, so I have got these visions of the fish just like well stunned mullets at the, yes. at, the at, at the new. Well, let's hope that, that we don't get them stuck halfway and we get a bit of a fish a, a fish. Uh, you know, it's it's like when you have an accident on the, on the freeways, Mark. It, it, there's a, it, once you have one car crash, it's a, it's a disaster, isn't it? It's banked <laughs> up for for ages. So anyway, so that's the fish. The fishways, Mark. Um, it's a potentially good news story um, if you don't um, anthropomorphise um, about the fish's expression. Oh, I will. I will resist the yes. <laughs> so, what's your story, Mark? Anthropomorphism. Um, my story is about sparrows, and sparrows have taken on a particularly important role in my life lately because my associate, Dr. Daisy. Um, uh, when she first started with us, was uh, found one of the, a, a little bird was presented to the hospital, um, and uh, Doctor Daisy decided to do the hand rearing thing, and it's turned into a very, very humanised sparrow. 
um, of very intent, um, very intense intentions. So uh, he's taken a pride of place little bird in our hospital. So this story about uh, the russet sparrow, uh, which is a species uh, very similar to our um, feral sparrows here, but occurs in China. Um, there's been a story about them building their nests, Brendan. The russet sparrows collect uh, leaves from uh, wormwood, Artemisia verlatorum, um, and those leaves are, um, have chemicals in them which prevent um, parasites building up in the nests. And, um, and it's very interesting that when uh, those... But where the nests that uh, use those leaves, the, the chicks get bigger quicker because they don't have the pressure of a heavy load of parasites. The conclusion that animals can use medicinal plants to their benefit is not, it's not totally a new idea. Um, there, are, uh, there is evidence that pregnant elephants in Kenya eat particular plants to induce birth. Um, and other mammals may use uh, medicinal plants to self-medicate. There are examples of birds using, you know, the macaws in South America will use uh, clay soaks as a, as a medicine, but it's not a plant. Um, but it's still pretty amazing that um, the sparrow species has discovered the value of wormwood uh leaves in their nest and it's interesting that they take advantage of um, specifically picking them out to limit the pressure on their young chicks. Now my question Mark is do they specifically do that or, or they, is it just coincidence that they like the look of this particular plant and it happens to be near where they're building their nest so they throw it in their nest? This is, well, as usual, Brendan, you ask very insightful and scientifically based, um, based questions. But, um, but I think it's pretty safe to say that, um, that they like, maybe they, they can recognize something about them. And then the genes that allow them to, you know, maybe they, let's say they enjoy the smell of wormwood. They might not realize that, that it, um, that it, that it has an effect, but they, a certain subset of the sparrows like the smell. Um, if that's a heritable trait, then, um, those, those birds are more likely to be larger at fledging, maybe have a greater survival rate into adult, maybe have greater fertility. If that trait is heritable, it's highly likely that it'll become increasingly pervasive in the population and the birds will develop a, um, you know, a favoritism for that plant deliberately seeking it out because they like its taste. So your answer's I don't yes. know. <laughs> 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 the summary, and this was published in Current Biology, um, the paper. Um, um, I've just clicked onto that paper, Mark, and the abstract from it, the last line sentence of the abstract is, our results indicate that sparrows use wormwood as a preventative medicine to control ectoparasites and improve the body mass of their offspring so you're that's what they can you're, you're suspecting i'm su surprised you the the usual um you know this result has it indicates more the requirement for more funds to do more research that would yes. that would have been I, I would have thought that would have been the obvious conclusion yes that's right um 
Interesting article, though, nevertheless, Mark, an interesting, um, interesting, interesting conclusions. I don't know whether I'd be quite that black and white with the um, summary in the abstract there, Mark, but there you go. <laughs> there you go. Um, so there are two news articles, which I almost completely forgot. Um, and now let's jump into our main topic well we have touched on this previously um, but we're going to drill down a little bit aren't we to particular particular types of reptiles so we're talking about dystochia in chelonians in our turtles our tortoises um, etc we have spoken about reproductive issues with reptiles in general in a previous podcast but we haven't summarized it in in our shelled friends previously have we mark so and the reason why i wanted to pull this one up mark is we had an interesting case recently so it sort of um, made me think it'd be a good topic so what are the signs mark of of, of something not being quite right in a, in a turtle that you um, commonly see in your practice mark when when they're they've they're, they've got a belly full of eggs and um, that something's not happening what, what are the signs what is the why does the client phone up and say look i need to see have my turtle seen too well, they're often quite varied, Brendan. I'll be very interested to know what the clinical signs were with your particular case because um, they range from just turtles not doing right. You know, they are turtles that have gone off their food that just aren't behaving normally. Um, there are times that we have floaters, um, a topic that we have, I think we've talked about before. Um, we've covered floaters before, Mark, yes. <laughs> <laughs> and um, and uh, certainly the presence of a big crop of eggs in the coelom can interfere with the normal movement of gas, so those turtles are not surprising. Um, uh, so I suppose I'd, I'd answer by saying, and there is certainly a, a, a proportion of turtles that we get to see um, who are um, a car accident. You know, they're, they're very close to... Uh, yes. position, um, wild turtles, and they are presented for another reason. They're obviously wandering around looking for a suitable nesting site and they get collected by a car and uh, and then when we radiograph, because they might have a fractured shell, we find that they've uh, got a neat set of eggs in them. But but there are a bunch of um, cases where they're, they're almost incidental findings that, um, you know, where... Yes, that's an excellent tip mark that one about the the turtle crossing the road and i think it's something that if you're not dealing with wildlife very often that you'd potentially miss and um it's a pretty common one isn't it you know always always um radiograph those turtles that are brought in by a member of the public because it, it's amazing how many of them even if they haven't got any obvious injuries and they don't have those shell fractures etc that we have um sometimes trouble dealing with um that we that we see some eggs inside and and that's the reason why it was crossing the road it was trying to find a, a spot to 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 dig and to to deposit those eggs mark so sorry for interrupting you but it's a, <laughs> a really great a really great point there um well this particular patient that i'm thinking of um yeah it, she was she was restless mark she was yeah. trying to dig around her enclosure and she was behaving abnormally and i think that's a a fairly common presentation for these but yes exactly like you say some of them there's no, no obvious signs there and it is an incidental finding on 
on a clinical examination, and it may even be a, a turtle that uh, is has a a male name and it goes home with a female name because the owners thought it was a male, but it was actually a female. And as part of your clinical workup or examination, you can palpate or blot um, some some eggs inside that female mark. So yeah, and I'm so like glad it. you mentioned that, Brendan, because that is you know the the for a novice. Chilonian uh, veterinarian, the shell does present a significant um, uh, impediment to normal palpation, and some might be turned away from it completely. But you've you've hit the nail on the head again in that um, if you position the turtle carefully, maybe with a little bit of um, you know uh, dependence, caudal dependence, so the head is up, um, and those eggs sit down in the caudal coelom, and you've per, um, Put your finger in the fossa uh, where the inguinal fossa, where the hind legs are. You can often uh, palpate one or two eggs, and if you do blot them, if you gently tap them, um, you can regularly shift them in a in a way that makes it clear that they are eggs. Very good point, Brendan. Yeah, so you can sort of you almost yeah you ba- they bounce back backwards and forwards, and you're feeling them as they sort of rebound um, on and. and palpating them on you, with your fingers there um so you know one of the challenges of this and it's and it's um how it's also a challenge with me a lot of the time is you know when to worry when do we define that we have a dystochia in the this particular individual in front of us um, so we've 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 determined that it's a female and that has some eggs inside um it may or may not be showing some signs or no signs of distress um or uh, being uncomfortable or restless or or wanting to to find a nest in sight um within its enclosure um how do we know mark when 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 is she due to lay those eggs is there an easy way to determine that you know what is the gestation period of this this animal in front of us and um when do we start worrying how do we worry um, well, we worry all the time, don't we? But we don't, uh, I'll tell you one way we don't worry. We don't lose any hair. Oh, that, that's just a low blow there, Mark, <laughs> a very low blow. So what do we do? What do we do? when? So what's your process, thought process or processes um, with, with these cases, Mark? Well, the, the, the first thing to realise is that um, turtle eggs are a little bit different. Um, so a lot of our other reptile eggs are not, the leathery eggs are not heavily calcified. The shell of them are not heavily calcified. But in turtles, in our chelonians, um, those eggs are, do have a, um, uh, um, you know, a, a calcium, uh, heavy cal- calcium deposition in them to make them firm. Um, and so I sort of look uh, to the radiographs once again. I look to see how well calcified those eggs are. Um, and of course, you mentioned the sort of turtle that becomes restless and is starting to search around. And sometimes you'll even—it's—it's it's a bit difficult, Brendan, because um, the turtles often the turtles we get to see don't have access to significant um, uh, terrestrial environment. They um, are in an aquarium with maybe a, a haul out dock of some sort, uh, but they really don't. Many of them don't have the facility to um, to uh, look for a nesting site. But if they do, um, they will 
um, you will see them often adopt those positions where they stick their butt down into the substrate to test the the humidity and temperature of the soil or whatever substrate it is, um, and they often get up on their their forelegs and tip their butt down. So if they are looking like that, testing um, the environment, that's pretty clear that uh, it's the time of um, of laying. The turtles will often mate in about in the wild around here in Newcastle. We see them um, mating about um, November. The the common species, the uh, um, common short necks and lo- the eastern long neck, um, and then they'll have a tendency to lay about four weeks later. Um, and so, uh, if we're into this time of year. Um, with our captive turtles then, um, and we take radiographs and they're calcified, even if the turtles are not showing that metabolic distress. And they are one of the species that can seal um, um, disease until they're just about to die. Um, that preservation reflex we talk about with our exotic species, turtles take it to the nth degree, Brendan. Um, they often... Um, you know, they're stoic and brave animals and they look okay until they're just about to leave this mortal coil. Well, some well, some fantastic points there again, Mark, and I think one of the ones that you mentioned there was sort of hinted at the prevention um, and the treatment options as well, Mark, that if a very common, I find, and perhaps you find the same um, problem with these ones where we are presented with a suspect dystocia in a chelonian is a lack of substrate for them to lay the eggs. Um, so they're in a in a in an aquarium or a vivarium where um, there's very little um, substrate there. So the turtle's thinking, I need to lay some eggs and I've got nowhere to lay them. So she doesn't um, and she gets increasingly agitated and distressed. Um, so that's part of the the basic treatment options, isn't it, that we'll talk about in a sec, um, providing somewhere where they can um, feel comfortable and adequate for them to potentially nest or, or provide a, a nesting site where they can dig and, and lay those eggs in there. So, yeah. And, you know, that the, the other common question I get is, you know, what is the gestation period? You know, what is the period and, and what, you know, what is the definition of gestation period? Is that from when they were mated to when the eggs hatch out? Is it from when they were mated to when they pass the eggs? Um, what is the incubation period of those eggs? And, I think as a general rule, we talk about what, about a couple of months or so, you know, um, roughly for, um, um, you know, there's lots of different variations on the actual um, incubation period, but to give a rough idea to people who don't deal with um, chelonians very often, it's it's typically a month and a half to a couple of months or so, isn't it, Mark, um, for most incubation? Exactly um, right. Ranges for eggs. Um, so... But again, it's it, it can be very hard to decide, you know, how long is and, and why did that, like this particular case that that, that uh, made me think about this topic was a, a female Murray River turtle that had been on her own for many years. Um, she had laid eggs previously once before several years ago, um, but she's been in the same outside sort of enclosure for for years subsequent to that and why she decided to go into reproductive phase this year or over this 
Christmas period. Um, who knows, Mark? So, you know, what, whether it was, you know, changes in the day length, whether it was changes with the environment, with the feeding, um, that the owner was doing to that, to that animal that set her off again. Um, you know, that the actual aquarium outside pond setup was exactly the same and it was inadequate as far as not providing enough nesting material. And that's why she was agitated. And that's why the owner brought, brought the turtle in because she was quite, quite distressed and trying to dig her way out and escape, um, also. Um, so yeah, what, why they decide to turn, turn on that reproductive phase. Um, sometimes a bit of a mystery. Do you have any ideas on, on, other potential reasons why that might occur, Mark, photo period, those sorts of things? No, I think you're, you've um, hit on those, you know, and it's a little bit like some of our birds. There's a suite of environmental factors that add together to, to create that stimulation um, that tells the turtle this is the time to reproduce. And day length is one. Um, the external temperature is another. Um, the the amount of sunlight and exposure. A tree next door may have been cut down and exposed the pond to additional sunlight, and that's changed the, the turtle's perception of photo period, its ability to thermoregulate. Um, that you did hit on nutrition, and definitely that's a factor. And we'll, we definitely have a number of cases where... Um, because they're so long-lived, um, they might be passed on to a new member of the family and that new member of the family, you know, takes on the turtle and, and yes. changes the, the nutritional status and then, then we have the, the, the altered stimuli sweeping together, rolling into an overwhelming wave which leads to overposition. But you, I'm really pleased that you pointed out one of the things uh, about that's very common about turtles is that um, like many of our birds they don't necessarily need to be mated to go through that whole cycle their whole system is not ever designed to not produce fertile eggs they 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 have evolved to always be able to be mated and have fertile eggs and so when we keep them isolated um, their system has no system no way to turn off that process and they will despite not being mated um, they will produce um, you know completely normal looking clutches of infertile eggs yes exactly so we'll briefly mention some of the other diagnostics so we have it we've we've um, seen the animal um, the owner reports that let's say it's a classic one and it's a little bit distressed and trying to dig, um, we may be able to palpate some eggs in there. We take a plain radiograph and that's certainly something that's very, very useful with them um, um, and, and and it's always the thing I always reach for. We also have ultrasound um, options as well, I suppose. Um, um, ideally, we'd consider also recommending um, general bloods um, just to see how they travel in generally and, and also looking at those calcium levels because typically what you also get with a lot of reptiles and when they're in that reproductive phase we get a massive spike in that calcium level um, and it often it often you know sometimes I've, I've looked at bloods from from reptile without knowing the the um, the sex of that animal and I'd say straight away that that's a female just based on the high calcium levels at that particular time of the year with them um, are there any other sort of diagnostics that you'd you'd basically do or you, you'd commonly recommend for these these cases marks apart from the clinical exam and the radiographs and, and potentially bloods 
no, I think you've um, that that sort of if we've got that much information, um, then we are going to uh, be happy to move on to some treatment. We'll have some conclusion at that point and and move forward. And the treatment. So, what treatment options have we got? Well, the one that I um, recently dealt with, um, I did the typical things, and that's looking at that husbandry there and, and uh, identifying, as I mentioned previously, that perhaps there's inadequate substrate or area for that turtle to want to lay those eggs. So, um, we had a bit of a chat to the client about providing a, a section of the enclosure for that and even produce providing a separate little enclosure like a little rabbit hutch or something I think they set up as well with some um, soft substrate in there um, and placing the turtle in there for several hours a day as well so providing them the option to want to lay and the the good thing with most of the turtles isn't it Mark that they do respond medically the vast majority of the time rather than having to get in there and do surgery which can be quite um quite challenging with these um, these species. Um, so that's the good news. Medical treatment um, works the vast majority of the time. And and then I reach for um, typically the oxytocin. Um, reptiles have their own variation of oxytocin called vasotocin, which is quite difficult to get and also very expensive. Um, and the good news with that is um, they seem to respond very well to oxytocin. The dose rate varies widely doesn't it as far as what's recommended for oxytocin in chelonians i'd be interested to see what you commonly use but my i typically start with 10 international units per kilogram mark is what what that's uh, a monstrous dose brendan yep that's what i go with i I hit them hit them hard (laughs) hit them early hit them hard i think that and i think you look i'm I'm jest but um we use a fairly high dose usually between five and ten international units um but the reason that we feel comfortable doing it we get very distressed with oxytocin in other species because of the the potential to cause the whole uterus to contract and you know um fix a uh, an egg or a fetus in position and not, not and encourage th- it to come out. And I think we need to jump back one little step there, Mark. So we've looked at our radiographs and, and identified that the eggs all look reasonably well formed and we don't have any eggs that look like they're stuck together or, or broken in there. So if we have... Um, damage there or potentially um, um, a big blockage going on, then then we have to be a lot more cautious. So at the moment, we're just chatting about the ones oh. where it looks like the eggs are all, all apparently normal, looking normal size, yeah, um, that we can get them to pop out. Sorry. But, but I, my experience is that, um, that in reptiles, we rarely see where you might get a pup and they get next too much uh, oxytocin a, a bitch and the pup in uterus gets sort of, you know, suction wrapped into position and there's no ordered contraction. Um, the, uh, the, the particular Chelonians, um, they seem to cope with those much higher doses without um, without turning into a little suction cut on the, the egg. That, and I think that has to do with both the um, sensitivity to oxytocin rather than arginine vasopressin and the fact that there's while there is muscles in muscle fibers in the wall of the oviduct, it's not the same as mammalian uteruses. The, the muscle fibers are much more sparsely stretched out in the tissue, and and the oviduct responds less intensely. 
but I do. We when we give our dose, we do dilute it. I don't know. Do you? We mix it with some um, some saline, and because I do worry that that big dose, given in its concentrated form, might uh, might cause complications. But um, do you do you just give it neat and whack it in there, Brendan? Yeah, typically I do. Yes, yes. And touch wood, I rarely or I can't recall any any um, any issues doing it that way. But yes, I'm probably not quite as cautious if you you are with with that as well. Um, but yeah, the reported dose rates in the literature, I think, at one, two, ten plus international units per per kilogram, as far as I remember. Um, anything else you do, Mark, as far as treatment apart from? Um, offering them a, a suitable um, substrate or nest in site and using the oxytocin. And while I remember that another difference with their, with these species are that um, it's not like a, a dog or a cat that we do don't need to start worrying if they pop one egg out and um, they haven't popped another egg out within within 10 minutes or so. Um, sometimes you have literally days in between um, periods of when they're, when they're um, laying eggs and then they still manage to pop out the rest of them um, many hours later. Um, there is a couple of other things we give consideration to, but we don't always use. The The first one we always think of is um, uh, fluids, but obviously these are animals, many of them, that are swimming in it actually, and um, and so they're um, often not suffering a hydration problem which might dry out the uterus, dry out the mucus and dry out the oviduct and the, and cause um, uh, complications with passing them. So fluids we give consideration to, but it's not a primary treatment modality in most instances. Um, we also think about um, calcium. Um, I think uh, for for... We definitely use calcium in certain cases, and it, these animals obviously have shells full of bloody calcium. Um, it's a matter of how well they can, um, you know, access that in short order. So there definitely are cases that we will um, add calcium to maybe some subcutaneous fluids uh, before we whack the the uh, diluted oxytocin in. I have. Um, had a cut, as you said before, the vast majority of these guys, uh, you, you, um, you know, it's a funny thing, Brendan, because in some of the literature I've heard very bad reports, uh, particularly it must be uh, the North American literature is uh, has significantly downplayed the significance of oxytocin. But in my hands, it's a, an excellent treatment for these guys. But there are some that struggle still, um, and, uh, and we have had some success using the prostaglandins, the PGF2-alpha prostin gel um, uh, that we use with birds that's uh, made for uh, pregnant women to stimulate contractions in pregnant women. Um, and, uh, and that has often been an excellent ancillary treatment. Yes. Yes. Um, interestingly enough, similar thoughts on the calcium um, treatment or, or lack thereof. I know that some some veterinarians um, will routinely, if they give oxytocin, they will give calcium as well. But um, as for, I did a little bit of a review on it many years ago. I don't know whether things have changed and, and there was no real hard evidence suggesting that calcium actually had a great 
um, giving supplemental calcium um, had had really any effect on on the treatment outcomes with these cases. Perhaps things have changed, and there is some papers written out there. Um, I'll have to look in the um, the newer edition of Madermark um, in the, <laughs> that chapter. Um, I'll probably completely uh, um, reverse what I'm what I'm saying here. But yeah, I tend not to give the calcium unless I think that that particular animal um, is low in calcium generally or I see some other long-term signs of perhaps it was, you know, really poor husbandry and, and really inadequate diet and they had a soft shell as well, um, then then I might consider adding a little bit as well to help it along. Um, so what do you do with these eggs, Mark, that are popped out? Are they going to hatch? Well, <laughs> so there's three situations I wanted to touch on here. The first one is uh, the single turtle, uh, like your your patient, um, in which case they almost, almost, almost certainly are not going to hatch. Um, there is uh, that, you know, reptiles are famous for popping up um, odd reproductive things and parthenogenesis is recognised um, as a spontaneous event has been anecdotally reported in a number of uh, species. And I wouldn't rule out the possibility uh, that it occurs. It has never happened in any case that I've been involved in. If the isolated turtle lays an egg, they have been universally infertile in my experience. The second one is um, when the turtle uh, passes the eggs, you know, say it's uh, um, given some medication, ideally you would have a substrate and give them the opportunity to, you know, dig a hole and bury them. But they um, they may not. The, the medications may provide an urge that's beyond the ability of the turtle to control and they'll just pop the eggs out anywhere. Now, those eggs in a mated turtle will be fertile and should be set in a uh, um, an egg-supporting substrate. Um, and the third situation I was going to touch on was where they're laid in the water. That urge might well mean that the turtle goes back into its enclosure at home um, and under certain circumstances. We like to watch these guys in hospital, but some people will go, oh, I've got to take them home, um, and the turtle may lay the eggs in water. Now, those, if they're fertile, if the turtle has been mated by a male, those eggs will not drown immediately, and we've definitely had eggs that have been floating in the water for uh, nearly 36 hours be set in uh, egg an egg substrate and hatch. So um, one of the characteristics of uh, turtle eggs is their ability to survive flooding. And they are laid in close proximity to water so that young turtles can get to water. So there is a risk that they will that nest will be inundated. Um, and if the eggs can survive a temporary inundation, that's obviously a big survival uh, benefit. And that's what we see with a lot of the eggs that are found floating in the pond the day after you give them some oxytocin. Here, here. I don't think I can add to that, Mark, um, much <laughs> at all. Um, is there anything that you recommend? Well, the the obvious thing, and some people forget the obvious, is to make sure we repeat our radiographs um, and count the number of the eggs that were there beforehand. Oh, I made that mistake before. <laughs> and afterwards to, to confirm that they've all been popped out. Um, we won't cover the surgical 
approaches here, but um, because that can be very, very challenging, we might do that in another podcast, Mark. Um, are there any any other sort of final thoughts um, about dealing with this patient, assuming that we've managed to have those eggs pop out? Um, any sort of post of post post medical treatment care that you recommend to the client for their for their turtle? Um. Whenever you ask me these questions, I think you're directing, like you've you've got an answer in mind, and most of the time I think I can find it, but I have no idea what you're talking about at the moment. I've got nothing, Mark. <laughs> no. Well, there are there are two quick comments I was going to make um, that don't specifically answer your question. The first one is um, the whole substrate thing that I think uh, that. Um, it's good to talk to your turtle owners about sand and peat moss and um, and wringing it out damp. So it's uh, that's sort of like the, you know, if turtles could um, give you a bit of a rating as to the substrates they like to stick their butt in and lay eggs, that would be the most successful thing that we've had. If you mix peat moss and sand 50-50 and dampen it down, the turtles will think it's the best thing to lay their eggs in. And um, the other thing I was going to say, I was I was going to, I had a question for you, Brendan. Um, for many of our dystochic patients in other species, uh, we find that um, that uh, pain is a significant problem, and pain and spasm uh, will start to cause a cycle, particularly in birds, of um, not wanting to lay the eggs. Um, do you use analgesics in these patients? Do you use opiates, for example? Excellent, excellent question, Mark. Bit of a loaded question, but excellent question. There. <laughs> um, my answer is not enough, probably, um, in that I, I sometimes forget to consider that as a possibility with them. Um, and my answer is also I don't know as far as how uncomfortable or painful that process is for that dystochic um chelonian mark so um yeah it's it's a great question what's your approach to these and and it's it is a, a loaded question one of the each ones that we fire at each other this this one i it's harkens back to my anthropomorphism or maybe my extrapolation between species because turtles won't tell you it's so hard to know whether they are actually in pain because they just give you that blank turtle stare. Um, I routinely do give them a, a mu agonist opiates at a relatively high doses, and yes. I can't. I can give you no um, no published paper that shows a distinction between those treated with those uh, with those without. But certainly, my um, my anecdotal response, I, I wouldn't even say it works better, but it definitely doesn't do any harm. And of all the treatments I'm happy to uh, have one day proven didn't work, um, analgesia, providing analgesia, if it doesn't make any significant difference, at least if they feel better, I feel that's a justifiable thing. Yes. And, and I presume that's something, is it... Uh, morphine or methadone before phenol. Well, you generally yes. we, we have yes. not much success with anything but the mu agonists, and so yes, method, we've got um, morphine, fentanyl, methadone. They're the the ones that we carry in house, um, but methadone is probably the one that we would use most frequently. 
funnily enough, if I'm reaching for a jab, it's exactly that for these um, cases. And I, I, I must admit, I'm only tending the ones I have given it to a once-off injection of it, Mark. And initially, when I'm giving that first oxytocin, I presume you're giving ongoing jabs every what day or so? Yeah, about every 24 hours, sometimes for five to ten days. Excellent. Well, I think with that bit of pain relief, Mark, um, Mr. Outro is about to kick in here and uh, I think that was a good little topic there and we'll cover um, the surgical approach to these difficult dystochic chelonians at another um, edition, Mark, which will be, gee, that, it's going to be a challenge, that one, but we'll have that soon. And Mr. Outro's here, so thanks for listening. And we'll talk to you next for listening to the vet podcast by the vet gurus don't forget to visit us at the website vetgurus.com where you can subscribe view show notes listen to previous episodes and more you can contact us via email at vetgurus at gmail.com to ask a question or just say hi thanks again and see you next time you